Uh, my name is Jacob, and it really is a distinct pleasure for me to be here. I just finished up at Redeemer Seminary, so I'm good friends with Julius and Annie. And together we got uh, Sarah Stone together with my best friend and her fiancé, Evan. So happy to be responsible for stealing her to Fort Worth. Oh yeah, feel free to clap, yeah. Um, thanks so much for, uh, for inviting me and for the, the introduction, Colin. Before I read our scripture, this scripture is about dreams. Uh, it's about the kind of dream that you might have for your life. And so that's what I want to ask you before we get started. What is your dream for your life? Well, what, what do you want your life to be like if it could be anything? Or another way to ask it, if, uh, if you're just daydreaming and there's not necessarily anywhere that you have to be or you know, nobody's necessarily asking you to do anything and your mind just wanders, where does it go? What do you, what do you want to do? What do you dream of doing? If I had to, if I had to answer you know, my own daydreams, kind of where my mind wanders and what I'd love to do, I see myself in a comfortable room, big cushy chair by myself, and I'm reading a thick book that I don't have to read, but I'm choosing to read. Okay, so this is just for pleasure. And, man, not much more than that. I'd love to have a nice coffee, maybe. But here, well, here's the really key thing. The key thing and the thing that makes it a daydream is no one is going to disturb me. Ah. That's the real dream. The real dream for me is just a little bit of time where I know I'm not going to be bothered and disturbed, and it really is just, just me and my book and my coffee and my comfort. Ah, is that so much to ask, you know? That's, that is like dream life for me, uh, and it doesn't happen very often. I wonder what your dreams for your life uh, are. And kids, I'd love for you to think about that during uh, the sermon while I'm talking and while you read the scripture. What do you want your life to be like? If you could do anything go anywhere, be anything, what, what would you want your life to be like? And maybe uh, your parents will ask you that after the service, and you could tell them what your dream is, and then you could ask them, what is you, mom and dad, what did you say that your dream is for your life? Well, let's turn our attention to the scripture, and if you would stand for the reading of God's word, and we'll hear about Jesus' dream for his life. Let's give our special attention to God's word from Mark 8. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he'd spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say? That I am. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is the reading of God's word. If you would please be seated. Well, before I explain to you how this passage is about dreams and a dream life, there's a couple of kind of weird, kind of funny things going on. So first of all, Jesus heals this guy and it like doesn't work. That's weird. He, he heals the guy and he's like, can you see anything? And he's, he's got, you know, like fuzzy vision. He's like, yeah, I kind of see people, but they look like trees walking around. So like, did Jesus make a mistake? I don't, I don't think so. I'm sure that he could have healed him entirely immediately. So I guess Jesus did it on purpose, but it's just kind of weird. Like, why would he do that? And the other weird thing is he pulls the guy aside, like out of the village to do the miracle so that no one else will see. And then after he heals him, he says, don't tell anyone about this. Don't even go into the village. Which is weird because you usually think of Jesus saying like, you know, go tell everyone what God has done for you. And he does the same thing with his disciples. The disciples know who he is. You are the Christ, uh, the chosen one. You are God's promised Savior who's going to come and keep all the promises God has made to his people over the centuries. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. Don't tell anyone. Why, Why is Jesus, like, tamping down his publicity, you know? You'd think that he would want them, you know, telling people, spread the word. This is the good news. This is the gospel about me, right? It's kind of weird. Well, Mark is actually kind of a genius, the way that he writes. And the way that he writes his story helps us understand these kind of funny, weird little parts. So what he does is he writes uh, larger pieces. Uh, He writes sandwiches, is what he does. Mark writes sandwiches. And the idea is to eat the whole sandwich and not just like the little individual stories. You look at the individual stories and it comes off kind of weird. If you read the whole thing and eat the whole sandwich, it makes sense. So here's what Mark's sandwich is. He'll tell one story. It's like the piece of bread. uh, And then he'll tell another story that's very, very similar or about the same thing. And that's your other piece of bread. And then everything in the middle, you know, the peanut butter and jelly, what have you. uh, He wants you to take the whole thing together and eat the whole sandwich so that you can understand the whole thing together. So, yeah, the piece of bread is weird eating a piece of bread by itself, and then eating peanut butter by itself, and then eating jelly by itself, and then another piece of bread. But if you eat the whole sandwich, it kind of makes sense. So here's what happens. Jesus heals this guy uh, here in our story at the end of chapter 8, and it kind of, well, it it takes two different tries. It kind of happens in two different stages. Jesus heals another blind man at the end of Mark chapter 10, and that one, the guy gains his sight immediately, which is kind of what we would expect. So there's your your two pieces of bread. Jesus heals somebody 
and it takes two different tries, and then he heals somebody completely. In the middle, Jesus tells the disciples who he is. Three times he tells them exactly who he is and why he came. And we read it here. Who Jesus is, the whole reason he, was, he came to the earth at all was to be rejected by the Jewish leaders, to, be, uh, to suffer and be flogged, to die, and then to be raised on the third day. Three times Jesus says this, and three times the disciples totally don't get it. Like, do not understand at all. They know that he's the Christ, but now he's explaining what it means that he is the Christ. The fact that he's the Christ means the cross, but they don't get that. So the first time is, is right here in our story. Jesus says, this is my whole point, it's to die and to be raised. And I, I love Peter's reaction, mostly just because I can relate so much to like correcting Jesus and being like, listen, I know you've never been wrong before, but in this case, let me tell you how I think it should go. I've totally done that with Jesus. And that's what Peter does. Uh, Jesus tells him what the deal is. And Peter pulls him aside and is like, listen, listen. um, I'm not sure you fully understood, but you won't be doing the dying. See, you're actually going to to kill our enemies. That's the way it works. So I'm glad we could have this little talk. And maybe I've, you know, set you in line now. This, This is like Peter's actual, like, thought process when he's correcting Jesus Christ. And he shows that he actually doesn't understand who Jesus is because he's correcting him. How much can he really see Jesus if if Jesus says something and he says, "Mm, actually, let me tell you how it's going to be. Well, the second time is similar. Jesus tells them plainly again that the whole reason he came was to die on the third day to be raised. And immediately after that, the disciples start arguing about who's the best one of them. So Jesus says, I've come to serve and to die. And the disciples are like, I think I'm actually a little bit better than you. Jesus, could you help us sort out the hierarchy and the pecking order? Can you tell us which is better than all the rest? Just totally misunderstanding who Jesus is and why he came. And then the third time is actually pretty similar. Jesus says the same thing over again. And right after that, James and John come up to him and say, hey, So when you enter your kingdom and everything, like you're the king, you're the president, of course, but if we could be like your senior VPs on either side, that would be great. They're concerned about themselves and the glory that they're going to get. So the disciples see Jesus, right? He's the Christ, and they know that. But they don't really see him, do they? They see him, He's the Christ, but they don't see that being the Christ means the cross. So this this healing in two stages, it shows us what the disciples are like at this point in, in the story. They see Jesus, but they see him fuzzy, you know? They see Jesus like a tree walking. And it's going to take the second half of Mark's gospel for them to understand that being Jesus and being the Christ means going to the cross. The disciples will have their eyes opened all the way so that they can see Jesus clearly. But it's going to take some time. It's going to take two different stages, just like it did in the healing of this man. So I think Jesus is healing this guy as a a kind of gracious act to show the disciples, yeah, you see me, but you don't really see me. And so the disciples fail to follow Jesus fully. 
the, rest, the second half of the Gospel of Mark is basically just how bumbling idiots uh, the disciples are and how poorly they follow Jesus. But what I want you to see now is the reason they don't follow Jesus fully is because they don't see him clearly. The disciples don't follow Jesus fully all the way to the cross because they don't see him clearly. And when we stop, stop following Jesus and say, no, this is enough, what are we really saying? We're saying, yes, you're the, you're the Christ, but no, we don't see him clearly. So the disciples had a dream for their life, right? Very clear that their dream is to have you know, prominence and glory and authority. When Jesus gets raised and exalted, they want to be right there with him. Uh, they want their life to be easy to be comfortable. They want to be a big deal, which I think is a very, very, very common dream still. What Jesus is saying is, if you're going to follow me, your dream needs to become like my dream. If you're going to call yourself followers of me, then the way you dream about your life and your future needs to be the same way that I do. And right now, it is not. And that's, I think, the, the reason for the other thing, kind of weird thing, where Jesus doesn't want the disciples to tell people about him. He's like, do not be evangelists. It's because they don't get him. They don't really understand him. How, how are they supposed to go out and tell people about Jesus when they don't even really know why he's there? Jesus doesn't want his disciples going out and spreading the word that he's the Christ and then them filling in their own details about what that means. So there's your sandwich that helps you understand some of the, the kind of weird uh, parts in this story. But then that leaves us wondering, well, so what is Jesus' dream? What is his dream for his life? And Jesus does have a, have a dream for his life. You know what it is? Jesus dreams of dying. He wants to die. He wants to do it on purpose. It is his goal. It's where he's going. His dream for his life is to die. Look back at our, our scripture, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, dreaming of the cross, making that like the goal for your life and where you want to go, it's a little hard for us to understand because for us, the cross is, I mean, you might be wearing one around your neck. You know, it's this, it's, it's this symbol of Christianity. It's a, it's a wonderful, glorious thing. But Jesus doesn't give this big, you know, theological explanation for how great the cross is. He just says, I'm going to get tortured and die. The cross was just about the worst thing anyone could have imagined. It was a way for him to suffer great pain. And not just that, it's Rome's way of saying, we're in charge and we can do whatever we want to you. So, of course, the disciples' idea is for Jesus to be on the other side and say, no, I'm God's chosen one. I, I can act for him and tell you how it's going to be. That's the way this works, right? Instead, Jesus says, no, I'm going to let the Romans beat me. I'm going to let them win. I'm going to let them kill me. 
And that's my dream. Two things I want to tell you about the cross to help us understand it a little bit better. Number one, the cross is a chosen suffering. It's something Jesus did not have to do. In fact, by all rights and means, he shouldn't have done it. I mean, literally never did anything wrong, right? This is the guy that we're talking about. It's not just that he doesn't deserve death. He doesn't deserve anything bad. And he deserves everything good that you could possibly imagine. And yet, he chooses to die on purpose. He didn't deserve it, and he did not have to do it. At any point, Jesus could have been like, you know what? I thought this over. This is crazy. I don't have to do this, so I'm not going to. And he, I mean, he says as much, right? He says, don't you know I could call down 10,000 angels right now, and they'd get me off this cross? I'm not here because of any lack of power. I'm here because I want to be here. So the cross is a chosen suffering. It's something that doesn't have to happen, but we choose it. And it's not just that. The cross is something that is for the sake of others. It's a chosen suffering for the sake of others. Jesus is, uh, how can I say this, not getting much out of this deal, is he? Jesus goes to the cross, and what's, what, what does he get out of it? He gets rejected. He's ashamed because nobody is with him. He gets beaten. He suffers tremendously, and then he dies. Jesus is not doing this for his own sake. He's not doing this for what's in it for him, clearly. He's doing it for the sake of others. The reason he accepts this suffering is for the good of other people. He didn't die for himself. He died for you. That's why he was there. That's why he chose it, for the good of others. That was his dream for his life, was to suffer when he didn't have to so that other people could be helped immeasurably. And we all have dreams for our lives, right? Everybody, everybody has some idea of what they want to be or what they could be or just some little way that they could improve their life if they're daydreaming, if they have some opportunity. And our dreams should be cross-shaped. When Jesus asked the disciples, who, who do you say that I am? It's not because Jesus like, needed to know their opinion, right? He's asking them because whatever you say about who Jesus is, you're also saying something about who you are. If you say who Jesus is and you say that you're a follower of Jesus, then you're saying something about your own identity when you say who Jesus is. That's why they wanted him to be this, you know, hail the conquering hero. Because then that's who they would be, right? They did not want to see him up on the cross. Because in the back of their minds they knew, oh, well, if this is the guy we've given our life to, what could we expect? Remember my dream? Ah, my dream of sitting all by myself, curled up with a book and some coffee. Isn't that pathetic? Like, isn't that so sad? I mean, I do love, I love to read and I love to have a little time to myself. It's not, you know, obviously there's nothing wrong with that. But is that really my dream for my life? Like, is that the best I can come up with? In my dream for my life, there's no one else there. Isn't that sad? 
wouldn't it be nice if I could have some sort of bigger aspiration when I daydream than just, man, I just want everybody to leave me alone so I can do whatever I want to do. That was not Jesus' dream for his life. And if we say that we're following him, then the dreams that we have for our lives should be cross-shaped. I'm just about to have my very first child, a son, in, uh, at the end of August. So, very excited about that. Thank you. Um, oh, you're overwhelming, please. And so I've been thinking, you know, I'm thinking about this brand new person who's going to come into the world that I have all this responsibility and, and privilege to love and to shape on behalf of God. And I have dreams for this little dude's life, right? What, parents, what are, your, what are your dreams for your kids? What is it that you want them to aspire to and achieve? Do you merely want them to be successful and not have anything too bad happen to them and go to college and make enough money and marry the right person? Is that all you want for them? Is that the end of your dream for their life? That they be happy and comfortable and not too much bad stuff happens to them? Or do you have a cross-shaped dream for their life that they would choose to lay down their lives for the sake of others because someone else has laid down their life for them? Kids, I'll go back to your dream. If you're young, man, you got your whole life ahead of you, right? Um, you could do anything. You could be anything. Uh, if you're in high school or below, what's, what's your dream, you know? What, what do you want your life to be like? And does that dream have a cross kind of shape to it? Or is it kind of like mine was? Kind of all about yourself. Now, if you're, if you're young enough that maybe you've been baptized into this church family, which that was really beautiful, um, but maybe you haven't confessed your faith and, and uh, said that you'll follow Jesus on your own and not just as a member of your parents' family, you might be kind of, you know, kind of thinking like, well, what, what is following Jesus like? You know, do I really want to do this? And kids, I got to tell you, it's really hard. Like, it is really hard. Jesus doesn't just make your life really great and solve all of your problems. Bummer. What a downer. It is really hard to follow Jesus. It's like, it's like dying, you know? Your parents tell you to do something, and it seems very unfair. And I hate to have to say this, but kids, we've all thought it. It's stupid. What your parents are telling you to do is stupid. And you have to do it anyway. You know? It's like a little death, isn't it? Or you, you know you've done something wrong, fighting with your brothers and sisters, and like it's so obvious that it's your fault, but there's that part in you that doesn't want to admit that it was your fault. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to your sibling, your friend, whoever, and apologize and say that you're sorry, and you're supposed to actually mean it. It's hard, isn't it? I'm sorry. Doesn't it feel like a little death? to apologize and to try to actually mean it? Well, on the other side, isn't, isn't all that much easier. Like, if somebody apologizes to you and you're mad at them because, like, they obviously did something wrong if they're apologizing, then what you're supposed to do is say, I forgive you, and then actually do it. And, like, not bring it up again and not be mad at them for it. 
man, it is hard to follow Jesus. It feels like all these little deaths. But the other thing I'd like to tell you kids about following Jesus is just the best. It is just the greatest possible way to live. There is a cross. Let's not make any mistake. But that's not the end of Jesus' story, is it? Because what comes after the cross? That's not the end. There's the cross and then something else. Something else. Well, so we all have dreams and they should be cross-shaped. Let's look at how Jesus says this, going back to our scripture in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? You know, the disciples in the book of Mark, um, in the first half anyway, they follow Jesus really, really well. Like, they, they are great disciples. Uh, Jesus calls them at the very beginning of the book, and they immediately drop their nets and go follow him. Jesus uh, casts out demons. The disciples cast out demons too. Jesus heals people who are sick. Disciples heal people who are sick. Jesus preaches the gospel, the coming kingdom of God. And the disciples preach the gospel. They do great. And in fact, it kind of comes to a climax at this part in Mark 8, where they say, you are the Christ. This is the height of their following Jesus and doing a really good job of it. But this place in Mark 8 is the hinge that the whole gospel turns on. It's right in the middle of Mark's gospel. And the disciples just totally fall apart after this. Like, they are awful disciples in the second half of the book of Mark. In the second half, there's a a demon that they can't cast out. And they have to call Jesus over and be like, hey, we don't know what happened, but we can't do it this time. In the second half of Mark, uh, Jesus is anointed for his burial. Remember, this woman pours out this really costly perfume and wipes it off with her hair. And the disciples are like, you know, I think we could have used that money a little better. That was awfully wasteful, Jesus. Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane for strength. He prays that God would be with him. He actually prays that maybe he wouldn't have to do this and says, but, you know, whatever your will is. What are the disciples doing? Napping. Jesus is praying. They're napping. Jesus goes to the cross. He finishes his dream, right? It's so hard, and yet he goes all the way. And where are the disciples? Are they following Jesus to the cross? They are anywhere else. Disciples scatter all over the place. See, their eyes are open. They they see him. But they don't really see him. And it's because they don't see him clearly that they don't follow him fully. They stop following him at a certain point. It's not cool anymore. It's not fun anymore. This is getting really hard. I'm out of here. And so I wonder... For New St. Peter's Presbyterian, where do you stop? Where do you, as a church, say, you know, I think we're going to follow Jesus this far, but then it gets really hard, so we're just going to stop there. And this is where it's hard to be a guest preacher because I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know you. I don't know 
the vision of this church. I don't know this little uh, pocket of Dallas that you've been called to. I don't know how to say this is where you've stopped as a church and it's time to press further. But that's, that's something you can do. It's something you can talk about when you're driving home or you have small groups during the week. If you go out to lunch with people, maybe ask that question. Where, where do we stop following Jesus? Maybe you follow Jesus as Lord of all the universe, but you kind of stop following Jesus, the poor homeless man. Maybe you're happy to follow Jesus as the Christ and Savior of the world, but then it gets really hard when you think about following Jesus, the humble servant of all. And you stop. You know, Jesus changes too uh, in the second half of Mark. In the first half, he does all these miracles, wonderful things, and there's lots of people believing in him. In the second half of Mark, Jesus doesn't do hardly any miracles. And when he does, it's kind of... It's, he kind of does it with some reluctance, but people like really, really want him to. I think Jesus didn't want people to follow him just as a miracle worker, you know? I think Jesus wanted people to follow him to the cross because that's who he was. That was his dream for his life. And so Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, this is where I'm going. And people just start dropping like flies. People will love to follow the, you know, magician guy who can heal people and do all these crazy things and speak so well. But the guy who's walking to the cross, what are you, nuts? I'm not following him there. But we know the rest of the story, right? We know that Jesus at the cross, when he was most hated by the world, that's where he was the most loved by God. He was at the height of his obedience. The same place where Jesus felt the most pain and separation from God, that place was his glory. It was the place of his greatest obedience to God. The place where Jesus felt most ashamed and people were most ashamed of him is the thing that we now honor him for. We know the whole story. See, his story doesn't end with a cross. After the cross comes, resurrection, right? At the end of the cross comes resurrection. You know, I, uh, I got my dream just recently. Um, just hanging out at, at home one day, and I cleared out a whole afternoon, and I'm done with school. So I got this book that I've been putting off for a long time. It's like, you know, 400 pages, makes me feel really important. And I got my specialty coffee, got my, you know, comfortable chair, got my dog at my side. That's a very important part. And I cleared my schedule. Nothing's going to interrupt me. I got nothing to do, nowhere to be, right? And then my wife called. And she wanted me to do some little favor for her. And it was one of those things that, like, it wasn't urgent. It didn't need to be done right then. She just thought of it knew that I was at home, asked me if I could, you know, can you do this for me before I get home, whatever. And so I thought about Jesus and the way that he's served me, and I thought about my role as her husband is to be her servant more than anything else. And I said, sweetie, I can't right now. I'm really busy, 
And you know what? Maybe we'll get it done tomorrow. Love you, bye. I don't want to do that. This was my time. I was so comfortable. I had my dream, and she or she was trying to burst my bubble. So I went back to my book about cross-shaped ethics. <laughs> I didn't get very far <laughs> without some serious conviction. So I'm there reading about how Jesus laid down his life for me and I'm supposed to lay down my life for others. So I got up from my chair, put my book down, went and ran this silly errand. And you know what? I was happier running that errand than I was sitting there reading my book. I really was. It's crazy, and I know it's crazy, but it turns out that real life comes from these little deaths. We kill ourselves just a little bit, and we bring life to someone else. And that is really living. That is the dream. The real dream is laying down your life and choosing to when you don't have to so that you can bring life to someone else. That errand was better for me. It was more enjoyable than reading my book by myself. If you're, if you're here and you... I don't know. I mean, maybe you don't have any experience with the church or uh, maybe you have too much experience with the church. Maybe you've kind of, kind of been burned. Maybe some people in the church have treated you poorly. Maybe you're, you're just kind of deciding, like, from a distance, ah, you know, I don't know about this Christianity thing. I don't know about this following Jesus thing. I have to tell you, it is hard. It is really hard. Following Jesus means taking up these little crosses and killing yourself over and over again. And it feels like a little death. But that's not all of it. That's not the end of the story. It's also the greatest possible way to live. Being a Christian is the best. It is super hard, and it's awesome. So if you're considering following Jesus, make no mistake, it is hard. It is a death of yourself. Nothing less. It's not, you know, snap your fingers and he'll make you happy. But it's in laying your life down that you'll find a joy that is indescribable. Because the thing is, we know the whole story, right? Jesus didn't just die. It wasn't just hard. After the cross came resurrection. Jesus' moment of infinite darkness was when the light of God burst forth. Jesus' moment where everything seemed to be going wrong was when God was making everything right. Jesus' moment of absolute horror is the stroke that writes our love story for him. And that's not the end. After this beautiful, ugly, redemptive cross comes resurrection. Now, I know uh, some of you, okay, I know, I know you because you're like me. You're thinking, oh, I really need to follow Jesus better. Like, I need to be laying down my life. I'm not laying my, down my life for people. That means I'm not really, you know, following Jesus the way that I should be. And you're kind of, you know, you're starting to come down on yourself already. You're starting to come up with these ways. Like, 
I'm going gonna, I'm I'm gonna to do better, you know, from here on out. I'm going to try harder. I need to follow Jesus. You know, look at everything that he's done for me. How can I do so little? Let me tell you, that is not the way to go. That is not how to follow Jesus more fully. I can guarantee you, you'll just end up right back in the same place. Failing again and promising to try harder. And failing again and promising to try harder and failing again. If you don't follow Jesus fully, you need to see him more clearly. That's what you need. Don't pledge to be better. See him. Look at Jesus. That's how we change. That's how we get all the motivation in the heart to want to lay down our lives for other people. Don't just beat yourself up and pledge to do better. See Jesus in his resolve to go to the cross for you. Despite his bumbling idiot disciples, Jesus was resolute in going to the cross for you. Read the book of Mark and see Jesus in his infinite patience for the disciples. Jesus never kicks them to the curb. He never tells them, which I would say, I have had enough of you. Jesus is so, so infinitely patient with the disciples. See that patience. See his scarred hands, scarred for you, saying, I did this for you. And when Jesus showed the disciples his hands and had them touch it, I don't think he had his arms folded and a scowl kind of like, look what I have done for you. No, he had his arms wide open and a smile and he said, look what I've done for you. See Jesus offering himself for you. More than anything, see the end of the story. See Jesus in his resurrected glory. Jesus is the only person in the universe who is in God's presence with his brand new body, perfected forever and basking in the pure glow of the love that God has for him. See Jesus there and know that he's already gone to the cross for you. He has earned your place with him there with a new body in a new world, basking in the perfect love of the Father. He's earned that place for you. That's the end of your story. And when you see him there, let's let's show him to others. Let's do what he did. Let's take up these small crosses and die for each other because that is the path to getting to where he is, to resurrection glory. And that, that is the dream. If you would please pray with me. Jesus, we have these small dreams for our life. We have these dreams to make ourselves more comfortable and that others would think more and think better and think bigger of us. I pray that through your scripture this morning, through seeing the sacraments, through hearing the word and through our fellowship as we go out today, that you would give us cross-shaped dreams. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus Christ, to see him for who he is and all that he's done for us. And I pray that as we see him and as we talk to others of what we've seen and talk to others of his beauty, that you would give us new dreams, dreams to die, you know, 
um, to actually give up our life like you did for us. Lord, you are the glorious one and we are the bumbling idiots. But thank you for sticking with us, being patient with us, and, and for earning our place there with you by your sacrificial death and your amazing resurrection. Now, we pray all of these things with great confidence that you will hear us, that you will do good things for us, and that's not because of who we are, but because of all that you've done for us. Amen.